we've got here is, is a project with a lot of data that we thought was important, that we think is going to be useful in a lot of ways, that we are beginning to crunch. So we've compiled all of the data, and now we're slowly trying to, to tease apart some analysis. Um, this is a project documenting the members of Indonesia's Constitutional Assembly, for which we've had support from our two institutions and also um, a grant from the British Academy, for which we're so thankful, that allowed us to go into the National Archives of Indonesia <coughs> and digitize an awful lot of basically CVs or resumes of all the members of the largest uh, parliamentary body that Indonesia has ever elected. <coughs> And then we can use some of that data to think about this group both as emblematic of the elite in Indonesia in the 1950s, emblematic of Indonesia perhaps more broadly in some trends that we know were changing and we've got good evidence that they were changing through these elite. And then to think of this as a baseline foundation for political studies in Indonesia moving forward. So uh, for those of you who are not Indonesian history uh, buffs like I am, which is kind of you know, all I do, let me first introduce the body that these guys and gals were elected to. So the Indonesian Constitutional Assembly, it's called the Constituante, um, was made, was elected in 1955 with the purpose of trying to write a permanent constitution for Indonesia. Indonesia had a constitution that was written by an appointed body, and then it had a temporary constitution uh, when it finally had its independence from the Dutch recognized. But the country aspired to have a constitution that was written by elected representatives of the people. And so in 1955, they elect this body. We've got about 600 members, which includes some of the replacement members, um, and task them, please write this permanent constitution. And they worked on that for about two and a half years. But they weren't able to come to a consensus about the perhaps the most fundamental thing, right? What will be the legal foundation of the state? Should it be? Islam, or should it be Sukarno's idea of Pancasila, or should it be a socioeconomic basis? And so Sukarno took this inability to come up with a, a agreement on that foundation of the state, and despite the fact that 90% of the other work was already agreed and solidified and in writing, he took the opportunity to disband the Constitutional Assembly. They were declared a failure, um, and Sukarno returned the country to the 1945 Constitution. So for this project, we don't much care about the Constitutional Assembly. That is just the way that we get to a large sample of the elite from the 1950s, right? This is how we get to the largest group that was ever elected in Indonesian history for a national post. Um, most of the members of the Constitutional Assembly were elected, but in this week of all weeks, I thought it was important to say a quick word about the nominated members. Some of you may have heard the, the very special uh, inaugural address given by the governor of Jakarta last week when he was installed to his governorship, in which he talked about this is the moment of the pribumi, of the indigenous Indonesians. Well, in the 1950s, there were four categories of people who were not considered pribumi, who got appointed members into the, uh, into the Constitutional Assembly. The first was Papuans. That's not because they weren't seen as indigenous, but because Papua was still being held by the Dutch until the 1960s. And so Papua was unable to join the national elections and send representatives in. Uh, the second is uh, ethnic Chinese. And ethnic Chinese were the largest of these uh, special minority groups that got appointed members. Followed, following them, it was Europeans or Eurasians. The Indonesian term for this is Keturunan Europa. So that could be pure European folks, but most of them were actually of mixed heritage, European and Indonesian, European and local of various kinds. 
and then there were reserved seats for ethnic Arabs. Now I mention this because indeed the new governor of Jakarta who has been giving this big speech about Pribumi, his grandfather was one of the appointed members um, from the ethnic Arab minority. He was not seen as Pribumi, he was not seen as indigenous, he was not seen as local, he was indeed a foreign minority who got a special appointed seat to protect their interests. For the Chinese, they were not even seen as citizens. They were seen as you know, residents who were important to represent. You know, the Arabs, it's unclear. The fact that his grandfather, Air Baswedan, joined the Mashumi party after being appointed in does not make him an elected representative of Mashumi. He was very much an appointed minority population uh, seat. So that just to keep us up with the news this week. Um, this is just to give you a sample of the kind of document we're working with. So these are handwritten documents. They're onto a form. So we have the same categories for everyone. Um, you see at the very top his name. Actually, let me sort of point it out down the sheet, I suppose. So we've got his name up here, membership number, party, um, his date, and then place of birth, and then his current address. This is for education. And the, the way that this was filled in is highly variable. So he's just written um, al Khamena. Um, so basically a middle school, right? Um, and then we've got categories here for your CV. This can all fit on one page as it does with Nasir, despite his very prestigious CV. He only put one page worth of document of uh, events. Uh, for some others, it'll roll onto a second page. We have one person who was so enthusiastic about his CV that it rolled not only onto the second page, but then back onto the back of the first page. So you've got you know, a highly variable not reflecting necessarily their you know, sort of prestige in Indonesian society, but more reflecting what they chose to give. And we've taken all of these at face value. So if someone fills in a lot, we use all of the data. If someone fills in a little, we don't try to supplement it with data from somewhere else. We take these at face value. Um, the goals of this documentation project are first to document the history of the members of this organization. Something worth doing, something that Indonesian historians will thank us for. It was a really crucial moment in the history of the nation. There's, there's good to be done there. But then to take that data and use this as emblematic of the post-colonial elite. And especially when you've got major political scientists like Jeffrey Winters and others writing about oligarchy and the capture of society by elites, it's important to think about where that elite comes from. And that then becomes a building block for other kinds of studies, studies of political dynasties, studies of the representation of minorities, studies of the history of education. We can do studies of uh, clothing. In fact, we've got a, a doctoral candidate in the US who wants to use this to think about you know, how do people visually present themselves in the 1950s. So all kinds of interesting stuff we can do here. Um, in addition to thinking about the post-colonial elite broadly, we can also use this data to think about specific subsets of the post-colonial elite. So what were specific parties like in comparison to one another? Uh, how are the elites of different genders different? What about different regions? So we'll be running some of that. Because one of the major units of analysis for us is the party differences, I thought it was important to lay out the different big parties of the 1950s just to you know, get that on the table, um, to, to get y'all thinking in the ways that we're thinking. Um, so there's one secular nationalist party called the PNI, um, Partai Nacional Indonesia, which is either secular nationalist or radical nationalist depending on the year. Um, there's two major Islamic parties. One is called Mashumi, and they're reformists, so they want to go back to the <coughs> Quran and the Hadith and derive their own interpretations afresh. And the other broke off from Mashumi. It's called Nahtatul Ulama, or NU. And they want to follow the traditions of theology that have accreted over the 1300 Islamic years leading up to this. 
Um, then you've got the Communist Party, which is more radical, you know, definitely Marxist-inspired, although has a lot of Indonesian characteristics. So these are the four really big ones. Um, those are the only four that got above 17%. Um, the next largest party was at about 7%, I think. Yeah, talking about the um, fragmentation between political parties, like uh, we have in PNI, Masyumi, NU, and uh, PKI. So we have uh, nationalist Islamic parties and also communist parties. So we can see that 1950s uh, the, uh, is the area, is the, the, uh, the time that Indonesia faced like uh, fragmentation between political parties. But the fragmentation in the, in the uh, Indonesia is not only between political parties, but also between uh, probably social groups and even probably between individuals in the local level or between neighbors and etc. But in terms of the uh, differences between political parties, uh, probably we can see the, um, the picture here. Um, this offered by uh, Herbert White and Lance Castles. Um, he describes and categorizes five different major ideas in Indonesia in the 1950s uh, uh, to 1960s as well. And he, uh, they mentioned that there are radical nationalism, uh, Japanese religion, Islam, Japanese socialism, and communism in Indonesian society. And then the interesting things about uh, their ideas is they try to put all of these ideas into mind and then put all of the parties into these kind of maps. And then uh, we can see also the, uh, the cross-section between ideas um, there. And then we can see there uh, where PKI is, where the NU is, the Mashumin, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, there's also the influence of um, ideas, uh, where it comes from. Like uh, why PKI um, admires so much about Marxism? Because it's from the Western ideas. And also, why the Mashumi can be called uh, social uh, reformists? Uh, they do want to uh, establish Islamic value, but the, the way they want to establish it is really different with with other parties because they want to do it uh, democratically, and then they want to imp uh, admire also Western democratic values. Uh, that's the uh, Western influence that makes the uh, Mashumi and also Ikae uh, quite, quite close with the uh, Western influence. And also and when PNI there. So this is the very interesting map of the, uh, the Indonesian political uh, situation uh, at that time. So with this data, we just want to know more about the, uh, the reality of this kind of fragmentation. Because uh, Herbert Fett and Les Castles pretty much discuss about the, the ideas uh, between uh, people, between political parties in ideological level. So how about this kind of fragmentation? Uh, can be traced in reality. So we, we, we will see how we try to find out uh, how this kind of fragmentation can be traced down to the, uh, the record of these, these elites. So what we'll do now is to talk about a couple of the different slices, the different sort of uh, approaches to this data that we've already unpacked <coughs> a little bit. And some of that will work towards this hypothesis testing that uh, Mang Shahrul set up for us, right? Are these uh, parties actually different in kind? And that leads to their ideological divergence. And some of it is just interesting data. And the first one I'll start off with is, is perhaps the most basic, which is age. The eldest member of the Mashumi claimed at the day of election to have been 102 years old. Now, I find this to be really rather unbelievable, <coughs> right? I don't actually trust him. 
Um, it's a fairly well-known phenomenon that for every two years above the age of 70 in Indonesia, you add five years onto the age you tell people. So I anticipate he was probably in his 80s, not 102. But, you know, we've got to go with the data we've got. On the other end of the spectrum, we have a young woman, and you see her picture here, Siti Jamiyad Deng Yahya, who was only 24 when she was elected. Um, so you really do have a, a broad spectrum, at least 60 years, you know, perhaps as much as 80 years um, in age range among these members. The average age of all members across the Constituanta was in their mid-40s, between 43 and 44 um, at this time, which is definitely younger than later parliaments. Um, some of that might be because of the sort of young spirit, right, that we're starting up a new country and anyone can get in fresh on the ground floor. And some of it is just because the uh, average life expectancy in the 1950s was significantly younger than it has grown to be in later times. Thinking about the party differentiation, there's some interesting things here. I will say that the Mashumi number might be skewed because that 102-year-old member lists himself as 102. He's in Mashumi. So that might add as much as a year. It's probably a little bit closer to 46. But you can see the difference in these parties in that Mashumi does value age and experience more. The Communist Party, on the other hand, PKI, is much younger, either because communist ideals appeal to the young or because they have less value for age and experience when they're selecting their representatives. But you can see these differences between the parties in that kind of demographic profile. Yeah, the other issue in the 1950s is uh, about how the party represents people in Indonesia. And then we have um, a term in the 1950s, even until now, uh, which area that they represent, uh, really. Like uh, NU until now is sometimes just seen as a party of uh, East Java. And it's kind of quite similar reality in the 1950s because uh, we have an issue of whether the uh, party is a really a Japanese party only or they represent uh, the other <coughs> island as well, or the other people from the other islands. So what we can see from the data is that uh, we have the, uh, the place of birth and also the, the, uh, the place that they live now, well, one, one, well, not now when they are elected. Uh, they said that they were born in province of on Java, 65%. So kind of 65% of them were born in, in Java. And then uh, whether it's uh, represented or not to the uh, actual condition in, in that, that time, uh, probably slightly over um, represented, represented. Because we discussed this morning, probably uh, the, the average a number of people live in Java probably around 60%, so probably kind of 5% more. And the four biggest parties also probably more um, offer pre, uh, represented Java uh, because they, uh, the percentage reached 68%. And why 68%? Because, oh sorry, just uh, probably uh, one more. Yeah, this is the, uh, the, the average percentage of each party uh, in general. So we have uh, East Java there, 20% roughly. So probably because NU, most of the NU uh, representatives are from uh, East Java. So they, uh, the percentage from East Java is kind of a bit more than, than other provinces. And also we have Central Java, West Java, etc. And then if you compare with other provinces, it's kind of 
not really balanced. It's kind of imbalanced because the the closest uh, figure is West Sumatra and North Sumatra, just 6.7 and 5.2. Uh, so it's kind of a big difference between uh, provinces in other Java and in Java. Yeah, this is the uh, the four largest faction in in the concept wanted. So again, it resembles the uh, the imbalance percentage of the uh, representation there. So this is the, the, the real issue uh, at that time. Which one is the real Japanese party? Which one is probably less less Japanese party? And uh, one of the problems is that the three biggest parties like PNI, PKI, and NU, uh, they came from more than 70%. They were born in, 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 in Java, more than uh, 70%, like uh, PNI 79, PKI 78, and N75. <coughs> so we can we can see probably it's not really accurate, but we can see that it's more real, uh, it's more Japanese party than the Indonesian party or the national party. Uh, the more balanced party in terms of this uh, regional representation is Mashumi because the uh, the percentage is only about 58 percent, so closer than the actual percentage at the time. So Mashumi can be. Uh, seen as the more national than, than other parties. Yeah, this is just the breakdown of the uh, the uh, province of birth of each faction. Like I am here, so most of the members come from Central Java there, thirty percent, and then PKI also from Central Java and East Java, I believe. Yes, and then actually NU. So you can see it's Java, the yellow one is the biggest portion. So NU is probably uh, has same uh, characteristic from 1950 to, to present day. And this is uh, the So it's more balanced between uh, provinces. Okay, another way to sort of slice these folks is to think about their educational backgrounds. This is one where we've got to uh, unpack it a little bit because the data that we have does not map perfectly onto modern categories of education. We have to do some arbitrary work. So I'll say that anyone who went abroad for any level of their education, we take that time abroad as equivalent to at least a first degree at university, um, sort of a, a bachelor's level or an, an undergraduate level degree. 36.8% um, of the members either got an advanced degree, a higher education in Indonesia, or went abroad for education, which is really quite impressive. I can strongly assert that this is not representative of Indonesia as a whole at the time. This is very clearly a marker of the elite. So let's not pretend that that is representative of Indonesia. And even that number does not include the 10% of the Konstituanta who just left the educational um, spot on that CV form blank. So we know that some of those others definitely got higher educations. They didn't choose to tell us about it when they filled out the form. We know this often because of the titles that they used or because they're famous people that we know their background. Among those, we have a total of 93 members who pursued education abroad. And this is one of the features that I find particularly interesting, right? You've got more people who went abroad to Islamic institutions than folks who went abroad to non-Islamic institutions. And even among the non-Islamic institutions, some of those are not Western. We have folks going to Shanghai, we have folks going to Hong Kong, we have folks in Malaya. When we think about the post-colonial elite of Indonesia, we are usually thinking about people who are educated in the Dutch system or in the Netherlands. 
And this data actually sort of shatters that idea. Once you get past the, the very top 10, you get to a lot of people who actually had advanced education abroad, but not in a Western system, in an Islamic system. Looking at educational level, this is the, the data from everyone. So it includes those folks who didn't fill out the form. Um, a very small percentage got uh, master's level or doctoral level, um, which you see as S3 and S2. Um, all of these maps and charts will be labeled in Indonesian, so apologies for that. That's what our database uh, spits out. Um, but the largest subset, the plurality here, is the bachelor's level at about 34.2%. Uh, After that, a roughly equivalent number got the equivalent of a high school education, um, which was still well above the average education for Indonesians at the time, so very prestigious. Um, I should say something about that small number, the 1% that got degrees or that got education in cursos, right, in special courses. Um, these could be courses for literacy. We have a couple of people who said that they went to Taman um, Dewasa, which is sort of like an adult kindergarten, right, to get special training, to, to become literate in Roman alphabet as they were grown ups. You also had a couple of people who attended special courses on journalism or even women who attended special courses on uh, handicrafts or domestic um, skills, um, which was something that you would actually train people for in courses in the beginning of the 20th century. The numbers here are the type of educational institution attended, and they add up to well more than the 612 numbers we have. So every individual school <coughs> that was listed, we put here, and that allows us to think about the overlap, right? So we have a lot of people who went to multiple Dutch schools. That's important to note. You didn't just go to one, you went to several. But we also have a lot of people who would attend one Dutch school, perhaps as their elementary education, and then they would go on to Islamic education, or they would go on to a nationalist school in Indonesia something run by a nationalist uh, social organization. You see the numbers for Luar Negri, um, Islam and non-Islam, that's for the folks who studied abroad, outside of Indonesia, and those that studied in Islamic education are about 10 more than those who studied in non-Islamic education outside of Indonesia. The last category I should mention are those two that are listed as Skola Etnis. We have two members who went to schools that were specifically for their ethnic non-Indonesian communities, one who went to an Arab school and one who went to a Chinese school. Those schools were located in Indonesia, but were not targeting the general Indonesian population. But it was interesting that even those folks made it into the National uh, Constitutional Assembly. In both the level of education and in the type of education, we see marked differences between the parties. So in level of education, Mashumi actually had the highest rates of education. This might correlate to age, although that's unlikely. Um, but they seem to have valued choosing candidates for the National Assembly, candidates for election who had higher educational levels. PNI and the PKI were fairly close to each other in the mid-30s. NU had the lowest levels of education. Very few of them made it onto higher education levels, um, less than 30%. And those that did were usually studying abroad in Mecca, sometimes in Cairo, Lucknow, Malaya. Um, almost none of them had advanced degrees in a Western system. In terms of the type of educational institution, again, Mashumi is surprising for the mixture that it has. It has plenty who went to Islamic education, sure, but most Mashumi members actually were educated in the Dutch system, um, in the colonial system, and they, they had risen, many of them, to great heights there. PNI and PKI, again, are, are fairly similar to each other, not in levels of educational attainment here, but in the types of schools they would attend. Most of them are attending Dutch or nationalist schools. Very, very few are attending uh, Islamic schools, only five apiece. Uh, P&I does have significantly more who attended uh, education abroad. 
um, than PKI does. NU is uh, sort of astounding for attending almost all Islamic schools. Less than a third attended Dutch colonial schools, and that's surprisingly low um, for the spread of types of education across the Constitutional Assembly. <coughs> NU's educational pattern also speaks to a changing or a fading pattern of Islamic education. It used to be in Indonesia that you would go for Islamic education by just cycling around between uh, traditional Islamic schools, often called pesantren. So you would go to this school and you would study a text with that master and you would stay as long as he thought it took for you to master that text. You just keep reciting it with him, learning it from him until he felt like you had it. And then you would move on to the next school and you'd master a text with the master there and then you'd move on to the next school and you'd master another text. And you see an example of this in Kiagwa Sadaddin Haji Asa'ad, who's a member from NU. And you see in his educational uh, listing here. He lists pasantren, and then he just lists four or five different pasantren that he attended. No particular years, no particular uh, topics. He just, you know, he cycled through these various different pasantren. For individuals uh, who attended Islamic schooling before, who were born before 1915, this is the general pattern. For those who were born after 1915 who went to Islamic educational institutions, generally they went to educational institutions that had a curriculum that had grades, that would usually have desks, where you would go and study for a year and they would tell you what you should have mastered in that year's time. It wasn't take as long as you want. It was, you know, progress with all of the other boys in your year. That is striking that, that we can sort of see that change across the members of the Constituanta by age. The other thing that I will mention here, um, this is, I think, the last time in Indonesian history that the most common foreign educational credential was Mecca. And Mecca as a location was the single most common location for foreign education, well above anywhere in the Netherlands, well above anywhere else in Asia. Um, and I, I find that really quite striking. Okay, in terms of gender, um, yeah, it's pretty much dominated by male members. Uh, 93% and only 7% of them are women. Um, I, I should note, that is well above this country, where in the 1955 elections, only 4% of the elected <laughs> representatives to Her Majesty's Parliament were women. So before we get down in Indonesia for that. Yes. But certainly the, uh, this percentage, uh, I mean, still better than other countries. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's quite difficult to compare with other uh, countries that has probably uh, as a post-colonial countries. But I, I tried to trace the Turkey, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the closest one, and I know the country well. It's very difficult to find the data, even to find how many women are selected as the uh, representation in 1946-47. So difficult, and I, I find nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then probably you mentioned that uh, probably in other countries they have no record like this as well. So in, in this term, so this kind of data is really uh, useful. Um, so the seven uh, percent is pretty much similar for the big uh, big parties, the four big parties, PNI, uh, Mashumi, NU, and also PKI. Seven percent, eight percent. But uh, in smaller parties, they have higher percentage. That's because they have smaller number. So if when they have one or two uh, women members, so the percentage raised very significantly. Um, but we also have several mid-sized parties, such as PSII, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Party, or PSI, MUBA, they don't have uh, women representatives at all. Okay, you can skip this. 
So you can see the DS, um, this bar. So the big four on the left, see the percentage is roughly similar, uh, eight or seven percent. And uh, the party, the Christian party of Indonesia, is it's quite different. It's eight and twenty-one percent because uh, out of uh, sixteen or seventeen, uh, nineteen, I think. Nineteen, yeah. They have four for members, four women uh, representatives. So the percentage is kind of twenty-one uh, percent. And also for EP and also other party, party uh, another Islamic party, the percentage is very uh, different because they have smaller number and and we have one particular party, PRIM, equal as Prim, the European Indonesian of... Yeah, the Republic of Indonesia Independence Party. Independence Party, yes. They only have two members, and one of them is women. So they have 50% of percentage. But because it's quite small, so it's not mentioned here. So how can we use this data to at least Verify or test the hypothesis uh, offered by uh, Lenscastle and, and Hermafet here, but unfortunately, because the data is so huge and uh, we don't have much time to uh, clean all the data, so I only managed to clean the the women members, and then I try to put these members, the data of the women, into this uh, kind of uh, fragmentation between the ideas here. So what what we got here among the women? Uh, in terms of education, so we can see here, um, 14 out of 40 of the women attended Islamic schools. So around uh, 33% and 58% attended other schools. It can be a Christian school, it can be a, so mostly a adult school or national school. And then most of them are in Mashimelen, of course. So this kind of uh, differences between the Islamic party and our secular parties is also uh, very similar. I mean, Islamic parties, uh, the women usually attended the Islamic uh, schools, and uh, secular parties or non-Islamic uh, non parties usually attended the secular schools or non-religious schools. But it's quite interesting here in, in, in PKI, Communist Party, one woman attended Muhammadiyah school. Mm. So, although uh, Faith and Castle uh, mentioned that there is no cross-section between Islam and communism, mm. but in the social level, sometimes they do have a connection, sometimes. But uh, we don't know well, what kind of um, influence of the Muhammadiyah to this uh, member. So the trend is very different with men's school, uh, because 32% uh, it's not, uh, not too different, I mean, 32% uh, is going to Islamic school and then others are going to uh, other schools. But in terms of the, uh, uh, in, in Mashumi, you can see the a bit different there, because ma many of the women, and also men, uh, attended the Dutch school instead of Islamic school, as you mentioned before. So this is a similar trend in, in the women, although the uh, percentage is uh, not really similar. And also the uh, employment history. It's quite interesting here. We found that majority of the women were teachers. So either uh, religious teacher and also teacher in, in other uh, schools. So 56% of them were teachers. So teachers at that time were the elites of the world. Mm -hmm. 
So they are really uh, regarded as those who has uh, very much uh, high place, and so it's high esteem by uh, by the parties. We do not know why why they have to choose the the the, uh, the teachers, but probably because uh, the women at that time were really influential in the uh, in the education system, and then not only. Uh, Active as a teacher, but also usually active as the uh, social member, uh, so members of the social organization as well. So that's why probably this kind of uh, cross section between teacher and social activism can be uh, a factor that time. So you can see here, uh, like members of Masumi and Edu, they are not so penny, so they uh, they also active in other organization, not only in the party itself, but also in other organization. So most of the um, Muhammadiyah members of the women, usually they active in ICA, the um, auxiliary organization of the party, especially on women. But ICA at that time was, of course, part of the Mashumi, not like today, because ICA is not political party anymore. Muhammadiyah is not political party, so ICA is not political. But at that time, ICA is uh, the wing of the Mashumi, part of the Mashumi. So as it comes between uh, between political party and also social activity. Uh, active Activity, uh, social uh, organization, but it's very similar. Uh, they do teacher, but also they do the uh, social activism as well in the uh, similar organization. And also Park Hindu, they also uh, usually tend to active in the church as well. But in PNI, mostly they just uh, active in uh, non-religious organization. So we can see the difference here as well. So uh, nationalist party tend to be non-religious. <coughs> so Islamic party, of course, they do tend to be uh, more religious. PKF is nothing there, uh, active as uh, members of the uh, Islamic organization. But NU, is, they do not tend to be a member of other organization than NU. They tend to join the uh, women's wing of NU, uh, called Muslimat NU, usually they're active there. So the cross-section between NU and Masumi is clear, it's quite clear, quite different between, between them. Also between PNE, between uh, Masumi, between PKI, and between, between NU. So only probably only Masumi here, there are uh, uh, two members of them. Yeah, two of them active in organization other than Masumi, other than Muhammadiyah, other than some organization. And the other thing about the women here is the um, the mobility. Usually, uh, as we mentioned before, the members of the constituenta live in the area of the provinces uh, they were born. But for women, it's quite different because only eight of them, only ninety percent of them, uh, live in the same area. Seventy-two percent of them move to different area. It's a very contrast trend with the uh, male members. So we need probably more investigation now uh, how to explain this kind of <coughs> differences between men and, and women. <coughs> probably because they, that's not the answer of course, probably because they married to someone and then they have to move to uh, the husband's area. Probably that's one of the possible explanations. Mm -hmm. So this is some of the great hypothesis testing we can do 
on the political theories that have floated around Indonesian studies for ages, right? And because this is a data on political elites, there's, there's interesting things to be done there, right? I think that the social activism upholds the faith in castles hypothesis about separate sectors of society. The educational data doesn't uphold the faith in castles hypothesis. But I wanted to also emphasize the ways that this data can be used in really non-political directions, right? As data about the political elite, we actually can do other things to think about Indonesian society that I, I find interesting and funny and cool. So one of those is the use of titles. Over 50% of the people who filled out a CV would include some kind of title in front of their name. And some of those were educational status, some of those were aristocratic or feudal status, some of those were about their social status. But all of them are, are sort of appending these things and that gives us an idea of the kinds of status that was important in the 50s and how you would claim it and which combinations were possible. Um, there's some of them here that will look a little bit funny to you, so I thought I might explain them. I should note that Mr. MR is not you know, what you just call a gentleman in Indonesia. Um, today it's mostly used for identifying foreign gentlemen. Mr. in the 1950s is from Mr. in Derechten, um, which is the Dutch title for someone who has a degree in law. So Mr. is sort of like Esquire, it's a, it's a law degree. Um, doctor, uh, the big D is going to be for someone who has a PhD, little d doctor is for someone with a medical degree, IR is for insignior, there's an engineer, uh, DRS is doctorandus, the old Dutch um, undergraduate degree. Uh, the aristocratic or the feudal ones, RM, uh, Radamas, or Lalu, which is from Lombok, or Tonku, which is from Aceh, Sutan, from West Sumatra, Andi, from South Sumatra, from South Sulawesi, excuse me. We've got different ones from across the archipelago. We've tried to count them mostly together. And then there's a lot that are for social or professional status. Some of that is religious status, like Kiai Haji or like Sheikh. This is that you have a respected religious place. Um, Yai, NJ, or Nyonya is probably what most of it is. Nyonya is for women, and almost all of the women in the Constituante had Nyonya put in front of their name so you could flag them as women. Not every single one, but most of them. Um, and then finally, Professor is not a function of educational status in Indonesia in the 50s. This is a rank that one would get special as a social status for one's service. Um, so it came down from the president, um, and you had to be declared a professor, and you might or might not have the terminal degree in your field. This is actually a, about your social rank, not just about your rank. There are two members of the Constituante who don't give any of their personal names. They just give their ranks. One of them because he is the minor sultan of Yogyakarta, he's the Pakualam, so he just you know, lists himself with all the titles of Pakualam. The other one is the king of Chirabon, so he just lists himself as Raja Kaprabonan with his you know, sort of ceremonial title. He doesn't ever give his personal name. I get it. You know, if I were the king of Chirabon, I would just list myself with my titles. The longest string of titles on any CV is Professor Mr. Dr. Raden Masuripto. Right? So he is a professor. Um, he has the rank on campus of being recognized by the president. He's an important person. Mr. Doctor, because he has a doctorate in the area of law, right? So we'd have gotten that law degree and then escalated it to a doctorate level. Raden Mas, because he is a Javanese traditional noble. And then, like many Javanese, he only has one name, Suripto. It's notable that this particular Raden Mas is from the PNI, because the PNI actually had more Raden than any other title. Um, they had 24 Raden out of their 142 members. Um, Overall, in the Constituante, there were 77 Raden. That means there were almost twice as many people who had that Javanese feudal title. Not any feudal title, just that one particular Javanese feudal title 
as there were women in the Concetuanda as a whole. And I think that says something interesting. In Mashumi, there's an interesting mix. And again, this points to Mashumi as that sort of category-busting party, right? You've got a lot of educational titles. Clearly, they valued higher education. You've also got some traditional feudal aristocratic titles, um, like Raden or Andir Deng or Sultan Dato. And then you've got, as you would expect for an Islamic party, a lot of religious titles. And you can get interesting combinations of these things, right? Mr. Raden Haji Kasman Singunamejo, right? Has an educational title, a religious title, and a traditional title. NU is the only party that has more Haji than it has members without a title. And you, you can tell they really wanted people to have gone on the pilgrimage to Mecca. That was important for their candidature. And then PKI is the exact opposite, right? PKI, the majority of their members actually append no title to their name. Even if they would have been uh, qualified to have one, especially an educational title, we can tell from educational background. And yet they don't put that educational title in front of their name. So this says something about the egalitarian ethos of PKI as a communist party. Now, all of this data that we've assembled, this, this whole database, everything that we've typed up from the various CVs, is all going onto a website. Lord willing, this will launch in December, so that you can crunch your own numbers and you know, explore either individual profiles, because you want to find a grandfather or something, or you can crunch numbers across parties or across uh, different characteristics. We hope that this will launch as a website available to the public in both Indonesian and English <coughs> in December. Hopefully. But for the moment, that's, uh, that's our profile of the post-colonial elite in Indonesia. Thank you all so much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.